Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. What is virtue? How do you acquire it? How do you live a flourishing, examined life? These are the questions your high school students could be asking at Princeton University this summer at the Witherspoon Institute's seminar on the moral life and the classical tradition. Accomplished university faculty engage students on discussions of the big questions, drawing on thinkers like C.S. Lewis and Peter Kraft, and using a Christian framework to stress the importance of the family and human dignity. Students seeking admission to the seminar should be earnest in their desire to further their education as well as their moral formation. Former students of this program have gone on to graduate from Harvard, Princeton, Yale, and many other colleges and have formed strong friendships over the course of the week-long course. The Seminar for Men runs from June 17th to June 23rd, and the Seminar for Women runs June 24th to June 30th. See the Witherspoon Institute's website for application details at winst.org. That's winst.org. Hello and welcome back to Forma here on the Circe Institute Podcast Network. This is a podcast featuring conversations with authors, teachers, creators, and community leaders who are carefully contemplating the nature and practice of classical education. Now, that means that this is a show that is basically built entirely around conversation. It's about dialogue and, and community. And it's the companion kind of show to our magazine, also called Forma. And one of our favorite people who's contributed to that magazine over the years and also to kind of the ongoing conversation that we here at Circe are participating in and hopefully facilitating a little bit is James Daniels. James is a, is a good friend of ours. He has been in the Circe orbit for a long time. He has been a head of school, he's been a consultant, and he's been a pastor. And he's also been a, a parent, a homeschooling parent. So, um, a couple years ago, about a year and a half ago, I sat down on the old Quiddity podcast that we did, our original show, and James and I chatted on the phone about how to discuss um, and cultivate humanness in our students and children. Uh, topics of conversation included things like common places in the classroom, habits versus subjects, how the seven liberal arts cultivate humans by their very nature, 
how to avoid teaching Gnostically, uh, seeing the world as children see it, and much, much more. One of my favorite quotes from that interview is, is when James said, I'm not teaching content, I'm teaching students. And as I was thinking about teaching in the winter, as we get into those long months of January and February, well, of course, February is not a long month, but it feels long through in the scope of the school year. So I was thinking about that, and I got to thinking about this conversation that I'd had with James, and it was so insightful and so um, rich and so encouraging that I wanted to bring that to you again here on Forma um, to the new audience, the new people that have, have joined our listener listenership, so to speak, um, who may not have heard this interview in the past. Um, so what I wanted to do is just bring a, a good portion of that interview to you here on Forma, and that's what we're going to do this, this week on Forma. Uh, without further ado, I'm just going to kick it over to my original interview with, with James that we conducted over the phone. And uh, thanks to James for being a part of this podcast, for being a part of our community, and thanks to you for listening. I hope that this, this interview is as encouraging and um, enlightening and inspiring uh, for you as it was for me, and that it will help you kind of have some perspective as you work through these long winter months where the school year feels like it will never end. Um, so without further ado, enjoy. This is James Daniels from 2016 talking about cultivating humanness in our students. Hello and welcome to Quidity, a podcast from the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and today on the show I have the honor of uh, talking with an old friend of ours here at Cersei, Mr. James Daniels. James, how's it going? It's going well, man. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, always, always great to chat with you. Uh, you had you'd been away from our conference for a few years doing stuff, and you had a, you had a busy life. But we're, we had we, we convinced you to come back this year, and uh, uh, we were really excited to have you back. And um, you know, it's not a Cersei conference. It's just not the same without James Daniels there. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, David. Uh, I've really enjoyed. Uh, Getting to know your family, getting to know Andrew, and just a lot of the speakers. So it's kind of like a reunion uh, for me. And uh, you know, sometimes uh, we have to go back to the drawing board and think through a lot of these ideas uh, that we've talked about. And yeah. uh, I've been privileged to be a part of a lot of good school communities uh, between now and then. So glad to be back. I'm- yeah, so you, you've worked with many schools over the years. You've been a teacher, you've been an administrator, uh, you're a pastor, you're a church planter. Can you tell people listening a little bit about you know, yourself and you know, give the uh, like a one-minute you know, recap of your life in classical education? I know that's an impossible task, but try anyway. <laughs> I think I can do it. All right. Uh, I think the biggest um, – the, the best part of this has been that I have had the opportunity to work with a lot of different schools. I was counting up the other day. And I'm probably working with 40 different schools in a formal way. Hmm. And um, for some reason, I've people keep calling me as far as uh, helping them connect the dots between their strategic vision and the everyday classroom. And I have taught uh, – most of my teaching has been in the area of logic, rhetoric, humanities, uh, theology, and, and then also being privileged to be a consultant at schools. You know, I'm working with Cersei for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, just a lot of great um, groups and people that I've been able to work with. And then um, ultimately here, my last stint was the upper school head at Westminster School at Oak Mountain, which is a great classical school here in the Birmingham area. 
and now uh, just filling a new chapter in my life, a new calling to be a pastor and uh, do a church plant here and uh, planting the church at St. Ambrose. Mm-hmm. I do have a 16-year-old daughter, or she'll be 16 in August. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, we do homeschool, and my wife's name is Larissa. So, you know, we're out here living big life in a small space, hmm. and I'm uh, just thankful for the experiences and opportunities that I've had up until this point. And, you know, I see a continuity between the things I do as a pastor and living life with people and what I've done in education. So I don't really see it as a change in location as much as an expansion of a location that I've been called to the whole time. Hmm. So, you know, I'm curious. I, I don't know if I've ever asked you this before in all the years I've known you. How how did you – you're from a small Arkansas town, right? Yeah, I am a son of a farmer, um, a cotton farmer, and uh, I don't really know uh, exactly how to describe the path other than – I guess my main virtue has always been curiosity. Oh, yeah. And so I've been a curious person. And, you know, other than that, um, just um, asking a lot of questions, um, seeing things beyond just where I've been, but at the same time revering the fact that there's a lot of things and just earthiness and farming that has played well into that. And, yes, uh, a lot of people – Love to hear the fact that I'm from Buzzard, Roost, Arkansas. <laughs> and if you don't know where that is, it's between Cottonwood and Snake Island. None of those you will find on a map anywhere in the in, on the Arkansas map. So, and I, I married a, uh, a Arkansas gal. Uh, I, I think my claim to fame is I married the prettiest girl in Arkansas, <laughs> and uh, took her with me to you know on my, all my travels, but. Uh, she's actually from Conway, Arkansas, which is between Pickles Gap and Toad Suck, and all of those are on the map in Arkansas. <laughs> well, I, I didn't ask, you know, to make fun. I, I'm actually curious, you know, how did how did a, the the uh, the son of a you know a cotton farmer, you know, you grew up on, on the farm. How, how did you uh, end up learning about classical education? I mean, I'm sure you're, the sense of curiosity yeah, yeah. You know, drove that, but but no, how did that good, come about? When I was working on my master's in uh, education, um, it was actually in a, a, a seminary that I worked on my master's in uh, religious education. There's a lot of things in my educational courses that I was seeing that didn't connect the dots with what I thought had been lost in education. Because, you know, think about this. Here I am in uh, seminary, and I'm reading uh, works, uh, theological works by uh, Augustine. I'm reading, you know, Anselm a lot of the ancients and medievals, and then in my education courses, it seems like all of the education courses that I took were based on theories that started only in the last 150 years. And so for me, it was a big disconnect. And I had a librarian at the time that's a part of a C.S. Lewis society that, um, that, that, you know, would ask me a lot of questions like, why do you have that book? Like, what are you doing with uh, Aquinas? Like, why would why would you read that if it's not required? And so I just, you know, was talking to him about that and said, listen, I'm just curious. And he said, uh, let me let me show you this book. And so he introduced me to Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, you know, a lot of these guys. And, you know, I'd ask about certain references, and he would give me uh, another line back to church history of who came up with that idea. So a lot of it was just tracing back the history of ideas, the history of things I was curious about. And, uh, you know, being the son of a cotton farmer, I was just dumb enough to read them where everybody else would say, you know, cry uncle. 
and they were hard for me. Uh, I had to scrape. I had to grind it out. I had to write outlines. I mean, there's times when I was wanting to give up. But the other side of that is um, I I was introduced to the idea of uh, classical education, and from the first time, uh, it made sense of what was lost in education that accounted for what I was reading in church history, what I was reading in poetry, what I was uh, seeing as far as what was missing in a lot of the modern educational theories. And then ultimately, um, I was introduced to a friend of mine at seminary that's actually teaching Latin at the, uh, the classical school, school nearby. And uh, he asked me a lot of times, like, what are you reading? Why are you reading these things? And I said, man, I don't know, uh, you know, but I, I'm hearing about this idea of classical education. And he said, I teach at a classical school, you know. And I, he, I said, are you kidding? I said, there's one here in Memphis? And he said, yeah. I said, get me an application. So that kind of started this uh, adventure, huh. you know, down a path that uh, I, I never encountered. Uh, it's just providentially just God's good grace of leading me at every step of the way to get, get to that point. Well, one of the things that I think is um, really uh, useful about talking about classical education with you is that it does seem like even in your talks, your curiosity kind of leads the way and, uh, and that you have <laughs> an ability to like, you know, distill what in some people's mouth would be, you know, overly complicated ideas. You seem to have a, an ability to, to distill that down to where anybody can understand it. And I don't, I actually do mean that as a compliment. <laughs> I yeah. No, I, I understand that. No, no, I think, uh, it is, I feel like as a teacher, uh, and as someone uh, is able to lead and, and has had the opportunity to speak at conferences like yours, that ultimately uh, the best teachers are people that never forget what it's like to be a learner. Hmm. And I think, uh, you know, your teacher's always the person that if they're not the most eager, uh, amazed, curious, excited learner in the room, uh, I think it affects your teaching and ultimately – um, gives uh, students, you know, uh, I, I, I guess I'm saying that uh, it, it deprives them of that excitement, that learning. You know, we can't do that every day, but ultimately you're the one that's the catalyst for those things that they're about to go into. And if you have forgot what it's like to be a learner, if you've forgotten what it's like to love these things and to look at them anew every time you introduce to them, then, you know, we need to take a time out and go back and say, you know, why are we doing this in the first place? Hmm. Hmm. Well, we are um, we're here to talk specifically about an idea that you brought up at the conference that you talked about. And your talk was called The Art of the Commonplace in the Classroom. And uh, here in a minute, I want to mm-hmm. dive into that conversation. But before we go any further, I do sure. need to say a quick word from our sponsors. And this month, the uh, Cersei Podcast Network is brought to you by our friends, uh, Professor Carol Reynolds and her husband, Hank. No classical education is complete without a study of music and the fine arts. And Professor Carol's courses on music, art, and cultural history are perfect for secondary school, homeschoolers, private academies, and lifelong learners of all kinds. I guess that includes you, James. And because of Cersei's close relationship with Professor Carol, uh, she's offering uh, a whopping 25% off everything they have to our listeners. So that's DVDs, books, and uh, all their online courses. To save that 25%, you just have to go to www.professorcarol, and that's carol, C-A-R-O-L, dot com slash Cersei. So professorcarol.com slash Cersei, and you can head there to learn more about this offer and to find out uh, about all their resources. Uh, 
of course, when you go there, you can also find out why our Western cultural heritage is not an elective. It's a treasure. And uh, Professor Carol is high energy. She travels all over the world She's to, to make these courses. She's got courses on Russian music, church music, medieval music, uh, American f- uh, folk music, um, just all kinds of courses on, on uh, music and art and, and how they uh, impact our cultural history. So head over there and check them out. And uh, thanks to them for making this episode possible. All right. James, let's let's talk about this idea of the art of the commonplace in the classroom. Um, I want to I want to read the intro that you posted uh, on your uh, the outline that you, that you shared with people who were in your talk in Charleston, and it's not too long, sure. so I'll just read that real quick, and then I've got a couple questions right off the bat. <clears throat> so it goes: the goals of classical liberal arts education are tied to the cultivation of humanness. With those aspirations in mind, the classroom must be conducive to humanizing students. Ideas such as freedom, justice, truth, goodness, etc. must be embodied and enculturated into the souls of our children for them to take on the habits of wisdom and virtue. While educational theories today seem to be focused on the novel and innovative, classical education emphasized starting with appreciating the beauty of the everyday and the ordinary. In the past, discussions around, quote, commonplaces were key to teachers' guidance of pupils towards these ideals. What is the concept behind commonplaces, and how can they be incorporated into our teaching practices? So um, one clarification that that I'd love for you to to talk about real quick is um, a lot of the times, you know, there's been kind of a, a revival of the idea of a commonplace book or a commonplace journal, like, you know, like the one Thomas right. Jefferson kept. Um, mm-hmm. d- is that um, is that idea related to what you're talking about here, and, and how does that jive with you know kind of what you're getting at here? And that's I just figured let's yeah. let's clarify that right off the bat, so that if anybody's you know thinking about that, they that's just that's just out of the way. Sure, uh, yeah, and there's uh, that's a great starting point because you know a lot of what you would see, and this is not uh, a new thing. I mean, that's something that was um, that was a tradition that was kept, especially by rhetoricians as they would um, come across things in everyday life that they encountered that may be something that reminded them of something else, maybe a quote, uh, maybe a line from a poem, maybe something they saw and then metaphorically thought of something else. That's, uh, that, that's been a part of the classical tradition for a while. It's part of a, you know, the rhetorical handbook tradition also, as, mm-hmm. as folks would have things at their disposal that they would draw off of to not only uh, be able to speak and express well, but just so they wouldn't forget them. I mean, there's a lot of profound things that we see every day. Uh, you know, I hear songs all the time, whether it be in the pop world or, uh, you know, the folk world or, you know, a book I'm reading that I, I hear a line and a phrase and a, a turn of a, a phrase or, you know, even uh, there's something I see that I don't want to forget. And so the art, of commonplace is the remembering, the remembering of those things and trying to retain those so that they can be at your disposal. So, you know, what, what you see with a commonplace book is a, 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 a tangible representation, a manifestation of things that, that are the way our mind works and things that we want to remember. So that ultimately, if, if it's just reflecting on those later or using them, you know, in a speech or using them, uh, just in some kind of written form, uh, verbal form in the future that we use. Hmm. 
Um, and it can be a great tool for teachers also because, yeah. uh, you know, as a teacher, I'm always looking for something that's going to make what I express come alive a little better. So, you know, there I've, I've got things on my computer uh, all the time or, or in books that I've written down that I just want to remember because I'm like, man, that's a great teaching illustration. That would be a great uh, illustration yeah. of this concept. Uh, so it's just a resource more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. And I know there's lots of uh, great resources out there that can help people, um, you know, learn how to put together a commonplace book. There's lots of people that have, have written blogs about it or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, okay, so you say that the goal of a classical and liberal arts education or the goals of a classical liberal arts education are tied to the cultivation of humanness. What do you mean when you right. talk about humanness, specifically, you know – I assume you're not just talking about, you know, the physical attributes that make someone human. Um, when it comes to education, what do you mean when you, when you talk about that? Yeah, I think, uh, and this is what attracted me uh, to Andrew and his uh, vision and Cersei's vision in the first place, uh, because it's always, at the end of the day, been about uh, putting things in context. And I think the ultimate context of the liberal arts is what are the skills and the habits that make us free? to be the human beings that we were made to be. Mm. And so when I'm talking about the uh, cultivation of humanness, not humanist, <laughs> but humanness, N-E-S-S, when I'm talking about the cultivation of humanness, mm -hmm. I'm talking about the idea that there's certain habits that make us not only just human on the baseline. You know, if you look at the liberal arts, uh, the trivia and the quadrivia and the verbal arts and mathematical arts, it's just basically – you know, in the in the in the most seminal form, um, the arts that help us express, and the arts of of, of being able to apply uh, those cognitive skills to the external world. And so, when you look at the liberal arts, the uh, you're talking about idea that we we can at least uh, we we have a mastery of language and a mastery of numbers uh, at our disposal that separate us from the rest of creation. Uh, we're not animals. We, those are things that baseline make us human. But the aspiration of the arts are that, that we have certain skills and habits of the mind and the soul and ultimately of the affections that lead us to be more fully a human being. As you know, as uh, Christ would say, uh, I came that, that you would have life and have it more abundantly. And the liberal arts is what I feel like are the skills that – if, if they're cultivating over time, and I'm not talking about just in the classroom or just in high school or just in college, but over time as we're working on this thing, going back to those things, they're the skill that's going to make us be free as a human being to escape a lot of things that would give us bondage over time. So, uh, it, it, you know, said in a more succinct way is, man, there's just a lot about classical education, a lot about the liberal arts that just are freeing us up to be to, to enjoy life as a human being. How – well, let me ask it this way. Do you think that there are some ways that we commonly think about classical education that, that like, don't get at that? Like, do we need to rethink – it seems like at times, you know, one of the things you talk about is, like, it needs – our understanding of classical education needs to be, you know, simpler. We don't need to overthink things. Are we overthinking things to the point that we're uh, not able to cultivate humanness in our children and our students? Is that a concern of yours? It is a concern of mine, uh, only that, you know, all the things that we've seen, and there's been, uh, 
you know, different forms and manifestations of classical education. And there's, and, and I'm not one of those guys that look back and say, you know, the idea of thinking of the trivium and stages or the idea of thinking of the quadrivium just as subjects or the idea of a liberal arts school that's just emphasizing, you know, the verbal arts or, uh, you know, that, that I would in some way look at those and say, those are bad. I just think they're not quite the complete picture. Okay, yeah. And yeah. so what what I'm after is uh, helping people or hoping that I can help and assist folks in understanding the idea that whether it's the stages or it's, uh, you know, grammar as a formal subject or if it's uh, logic as a formal subject or if there's symbols and equations that are, are, are attached to those things that – Let's be careful not to make those an end in themselves and understanding that all of those uh, encompass a broader view and, a, 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 I think, a, a more imaginative, creative view in the liberal arts that at the end, if we lose track and we lose the perspective that these things cultivate certain human attributes that make us who we are as image bearers and as physical, you know, uh, beings that have physicality, if they short circuit that, or we feel like we're not able to get where we want to be by way of a liberal arts free human uh, thing, then then that's when those uh, all of those different venues have become an end in themselves. And I think that's my greatest fear when I work at schools of saying, listen, what you're doing is not bad, but we got a there's a telos, there's a purpose, there's something you're moving toward. Don't lose perspective of that. Or it's just going to become another thing that you're teaching, or it's going to be another thing that you encounter that you may or may not know if you're using intentionally. Hmm. You you've spoken, you know, at some length, I think, about the idea of that we need to tweak our understanding of the trivium and the quadrivium, and you're kind of alluding to that there. Um, sure. You talk about the liberal arts as habits, for example, in in the talk. Can you? Right. Can you? Uh, talk about that a little bit. That's not really a question. That's more of a suggestion. But um, sure. when you talk yeah. about, can you help me understand or help our listeners understand what you mean when you say that liberal arts are habits as opposed to subjects, as you just mentioned a minute ago? Right. I mean, uh, you know, we obviously on the baseline level, we can all agree that grammar is a subject, logic can be a subject, and rhetoric can be a subject. Right. And so when I'm talking to a lot of teachers and uh, whether they be in homeschool or whether they're in homeschool or they're in private schools, uh, that, that's the easiest thing to wrap your head around. There's nothing yeah. wrong with that. But yeah. there's, a, yeah. there's a skill academically and intellectually, there's a skill attached to all of those. And I always start this way because I think it's fascinating because when I'm dealing with teachers, uh, a lot of times I ask them, what's the skill of rhetoric? And they will say, you know, the art of expression and the art of persuasion. Mm-hmm. I ask them what the skill of the logic is, and they say, you know, it's a, the, the skill of thinking or the skill of making judgments or the skill of, of building arguments. And those things are great. And I ask them what the skill, you know, if it's a verbal art, it's a skill. When I ask them um, what the skill of grammar is, then that's, uh, there's always a hesitation. And I feel like they, 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 a lot of times they say it's a skill of memory. Or, or they say, you know, it's a skill of uh, information. Well, you know, it's a very content-driven answer. And so when you look back, 
the skill of grammar is uh, the skill of letters in the raw form, but ultimately it's just linking a concept to a symbol. So those are just academic skills that are represented uh, in a in a the, the verbal arts. You know, arts always um, a skill that's cultivated to mastery. But the other side to it is, uh, I think it's more human than that in my mind. And I've had good friends that I've had a lot of conversations with, and that is that there's a certain uh, human feel about the verbal arts when you look at grammar and logic and rhetoric, and that is the ability to walk into a situation, to observe it well, to assess what you're seeing, and then ultimately be able to not only cognitively wrap your head around it, but express it in a way uh, where people see or they understand what you have encountered through that. And so when I'm talking about uh, grammar, I'm talking about the basic skills of teaching a child, you know, to uh, the basic concepts of understanding, to approach, to interpret, to submit and imagine. Hmm. Uh, When I'm talking about dialectic or logic, I'm talking about the idea that they begin to discover and find and follow and discern and order. Uh, when I'm talking about rhetoric, I'm talking about being able to take it a step further and express and then lead and instruct and move and ultimately delight people with your expression of what you've encountered. I mean, those are human. Uh, those are those are fascinating things. I mean, that's what makes us a human being. I mean, we all want to be able to make sense of what we encounter. We all want time to kind of see the world around us and and need we all need time, whether we know it or not, to understand, make sense of what we're doing in an age of information. You know, we're bombarded by that. And ultimately we want to be able to express well. I mean there's nothing more frustrating than uh you, you see something, you kind of make sense of it, but you can't communicate it well. So the verbal art are uh, at the heart of what it means to be a human being and to communicate, to commune with other human beings, and ultimately to cultivate unity around those things. Hmm. So, and then the quadrivium would be applying that to the external world where you would okay, take yeah. those skills, yeah, and then you would take those skills mathematically uh, or scientifically and you investigate in a different way, but you never leave those same principles. Okay. Yeah, I was going to... Or just applying it to the external world. Yeah. How do... You're talking about, you know, um, tweaking our understanding of the trivium and the quadrivium. And in what ways does that tweak, does that that new understanding specifically enable us to cultivate humanness? Is it... Does it do that because when we think about the trivium and the quadrivium or the several liberal arts, however you want to put it, it, does it do that because of that understanding of those things helps us cultivate an, a certain environment in the school? Does it do it because it um, helps us interact with our students differently? Do, does that, does, do you get yeah, what I'm yeah, asking? Yeah, yeah I, I think I know what you're saying by that. Uh, because it's skills, um, it, they, a skill reinforced over time becomes a habit. And okay. um, the yeah, classical, yeah. you know, and there's a, there's a lot of things that are written, been being written right now by way of the affections and loving and loving the right things. And so what I love about the liberal arts is this is not just an academic pursuit. Uh, in the past, the goal has been 
ordering the mind to order the soul or to, or for intellectual habits become habits of the soul in order to order the affections. And so we're not just talking about thinking here. We're not just talking about intellectual habits, but over time, these are things as they're absorbed and as they're cultivated in the soul take root in a way that we can't always account for as a teacher, but we keep cultivating surrounding our our students with models and and a set way of working through these habits and being intentional in developing these habits so that become a part of not only their you know, a part of their mind but also their psyche and their soul. And ultimately it begins to take hold of their affections. So, you know, I tell folks all the time that I'm not only looking for thinkers, uh, but also those that develop habits of virtue. And ultimately, I think the, the litmus test on classical education, that are kids loving appropriately, and are they loving the, the things that are worth loving? Hmm. So, and then is that where the, this idea of commonplaces, you know, uh, in the classroom helps us do that, helps us cultivate that? Yes, and here's here's why it does. It keeps these ideas from becoming Gnostic. It keeps these ideas from becoming lofty. You know, the uh, easy okay. part of education is to introduce ideas and talk about it, ideas. And I'm yeah, talking about yeah. something different than, you know, I, I can talk about the idea of chivalry, and I can look to King Arthur and a lot of those things, but ultimately I've got to enter the world where the kids live and there's nothing wrong with reading literature that introduces these ideas. There's nothing wrong with talking about the ideas. I mean, even if you talk about symmetry and justice and equality, when you're talking about a math problem, I mean, all those things are great. But if in some way I don't enter their world and, and let them understand that as human beings, we all have something in common, we all have these things that we encounter every day, then it becomes lofty in a hurry. Uh, and not only that, but if I'm talking about a lot of things like chivalry and nobility and using a lot of terminology that they don't encounter every day, if I don't uh, attach that in some way to a tangible idea, to a tangible action, and pointing out models that not only are from the past, but models that, that they'll see every day or ways that they can exhibit a model where they are, then ultimately, after uh, a while, they're going to see those uh, that idea is irrelevant. So what I love is the idea that, you know, I'm going to start with something they know and there's known tangible kind of models, like whatever that might be. And this is, goes back to why I love even as teachers to keep commonplace books because, you know, there's things that we all have in common, you know, love, you know, whether you're talking about romantic love or just love of a brother, you know, there's things that make us human, our experiences, our emotions, things that we've encountered, things that we've seen in the world. And then we begin to break those down. But ultimately, we need to apply it back to it's a, it's the ancient model of from the whole to the part to the whole. Ultimately, we got to bring it back down again uh, as we're, we're talking about that. And I think it's not only good teaching. I think the classical education has always emphasized applying that to the world around us and who we are. But ultimately, I think it's a, a Christian model of the Word became flesh. And I feel like as a teacher, it's easy to throw out a bunch of ideas. The hard work of teaching is to connect up to experiences and encounters and tangible models that they will see. 
not just in literature and not just in math class or not just in the word problem, but ultimately that they'll see every day in in their world. So are there any tools or resources that can help a teacher do that in practice, like an actual practice? Can, can you help some, like say someone, a teacher is trying to teach something, um, are there, that they, they could easily drift towards the abstract. Um, how, mm-hmm. What can a teacher do in that classroom or with that particular student or group of students that can help them avoid becoming Gnostic in the way they approach the things that they're trying to teach? Are there any, any specific tools that you have or advice? Uh, yeah, I think uh, – I think the advice is uh, what I'm, you know, maybe bringing it back to what we talked about before, uh, before is the the teacher's the primary learner in the room, and that is we ne- we don't need to forget how we got to those concepts in the first place. I mean, there's something that we encountered in our lives that spurred thought, you know, just like uh, I was mentioned before. I was on the farm, and some things that I encountered and saw, and uh, my attempt to make sense of the world in a very tangible way it spurred me to be curious. And I think a lot of times as teachers, we deny them the process of how we learn it in the first place. And we want to jump to the product. Education is always a process, and that is remembering how we learn, remembering the things that maybe spurred our love for literature, remembering why we fell in love with, you know, as a math teacher, while we fell in love with, with math in the first place. So I'm saying maybe it's the, not to use cliche, but remembering our first love as teachers. What are the things that we encountered that made us think about that? The second thing is drawing off of anything you can, and and, and it's almost like, a, uh, I guess, fine-tuning your ability to say, listen, we all live in this world. You know, whether I'm driving in the school or whether I'm at home school and I'm looking around the room, what can I draw off of in a tangible way to start the class? Uh, another thing is uh, I don't think um, I would never enter a classroom or enter a, um, a homeschool situation where I don't start with a poem or a quote or a piece of music or a piece of artwork or some physical thing that I bring in, whether it's uh, a pear uh, from a tree or whether it's from uh, – you know, a bicycle outside to uh, talk about motion and force, you know, whatever I can bring in in a tangible way, uh, that would be good. I like the idea of what you talked about before, what we were talking about as far as teachers keeping a commonplace book because it makes us more intentional. And then ultimately just remembering the paradigm of I want to start with something tangible. As abstract as we might go, let's go back to something tangible at the end by way of application. So those are just some initial thoughts. Yeah. How do we add um, – well, well uh, you, you have um, sparked in my mind the idea of like the common topics, and is that something that plays yeah. into this? You know, the common topics are a big part of the Lost Tools of Writing, our writing curriculum. How does that play into yeah. into this discussion? Yeah. I think, uh, I think one of the things that to- – common topics are a great tool. Uh, and the beauty of a classical education is that that we don't have to like we don't have to be you know we're, we're, we can be creative we don't have to be as innovative as I feel like a lot of people are trying to be as far as coming up with things. There's a lot of tried and true methods, and you know people look at classical education like it's this brand new experiment. The experiment is what's been going on in education for the last 150 years. 
we're going back to tried and true models. And and there's teachers that have come before this that have done that have done a very good job of articulating good tools to use. And uh, the common topics are one of those. And you know, the topic the common topics um, as a list or the common topics as a way of teaching and thinking and expressing uh, are a little bit different than uh, commonplaces. You know, commonplaces would be more broad in that you would say. You know, what can I draw off of, whether it's the sky or the, a flower or something like that, that I can bring into the classroom or I can bring into a teaching situation to draw off of? The common topics are structures and, and uh, like structures places of that thought. you would. Yeah, structures of thought, but also, okay. you know, structures of uh, that we can use. I always say the common topics. The reason it's been so profound in, in writing is the cure for writer's block. You know, if I don't know what to write, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, a fourth grader writing an essay or uh, or a kindergartner saying, I don't know how to express this. Like, could you give me an example? You know, can you give me a comparison? Uh, all of those, all the way up to 12th grade when I've had rhetoric students that are sitting before me and saying, I don't know where to go with this. And I said, have you looked at your common topic list? You know, can you define, compare, relate, give an example? These are ways, kind of a checklist, but it's not just a writing tool. You know, as a teacher, I remember days when I was setting uh, any any list of the common topics, and there are a lot of common topic lists out there. I mean, Aristotle had like 28 ways of arguing, <laughs> you know, and expressing. And I think, you know, start with something simple. And, you know, I passed out common topics lists when I was talking about this idea, but... Uh, the bottom line is, what are going to be the things, what are the forms, what are the things that eventually, if I ask questions that relate to defining, comparing, relating, give an example. Or when I'm a teacher, if I don't understand why my class is not quite getting the concept, what's going to be the mental checklist I have or even the physical checklist I have to make sure I'm asking intentional and good questions that are going to form these habits that we've talked about. And so the common topics are, I would say, more of a, a structured way of thinking about commonplace. I mean, if you think about commonplace, it's broader. It's just saying right. the things that make us human, the things that we can draw from in an open way. The common topics are more of we've got to take all these experiences and order them and have a form and a structure around them in some way that creates uh, intentional and ordered habits and thoughts that move us to certain uh, skills of argumenting and expressing. And I'm willing to make my list available to anyone, you know, whether it be on the Cersei website or, or something else that, that would help them in some ways. And like I said, I, I pass those out. But my list is not the end-all, be-all. And I think it does represent intentional explanations, intentional questions that move people to understanding, ordering, categorizing, and thinking about their world in a more intentional way that I think orders the mind, orders the soul, and ultimately has an effect on the affections. So even on the outline for the talk you gave at the conference, you talk about how parents and teachers should emphasize certain things over other things you know, as they're teaching. Right. So you emphasize conversation over content, for example, or yeah. um, skills over structures. Um, or even the idea of like um, emphasizing that students should should contemplate over critiquing. Um, why right. do you emphasize um, you know 
conversation over content or contemplation over critiquing. What um, I mean, there's. I think it's pretty clear the difference between them, but why is one of why sure. is conversation better than content in the classroom? Yeah, yeah, because uh, ultimately, you know, I'm not teaching content. I'm I'm teaching students. Okay. Ultimately, I'm not. I don't come in with an agenda that in some way would uh, overpower the the beauty of what is being cultivated in the classroom to the point where I dehumanize my students by depriving them of all the things that we've talked about, you know, up until this point. And so when you're thinking about conversation, uh, when you're thinking about human skills, when you're thinking about the ability to see and observe, when you're talking about contemplation, those are human things. You know, the opposite is of overemphasis on, not to pin it against, but an overemphasis on content, an overemphasis on information, overemphasis on critiquing things to the point where you break them down, but the kids haven't had a uh, an opportunity to really experience and enjoy and love what they're doing. Mm. And so, I think those are the types of things when I'm I'm talking about the you know conversation uh, piece over you know, the content. It's not a. I don't say conversation versus content. Hmm. I'm saying the converse, the content, and the critiquing is subservient to the things that we're wanting to cultivate uh, in our students as human beings. Hmm. So, and that's is that where you know is that where the habits, the skills, and the habits come in again? Like it, it becomes if if they learn to approach uh, content via conversation, or they learn to. Um, to become contemplators over critiquers, that those then become those be, become habits that that help uh, cultivate, you know, and order their own souls. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, ultimately, you know, you're talking about um, uh, again humanizing the classroom. Um, that I think every teacher, no matter what they're teaching, if, uh, if it's a quadratic formula mm-hmm. or it's some algebraic f- phrase or they're showing them pieces of artwork, or we're reading a book, or we're, uh, you know, uh, encoding and decoding and, and reading, or whether we're, um, you know, looking at the life cycle of a butterfly. Ultimately, those are means to to a question that we should always be asking, should be the forefront of our mind. How is what I'm doing cultivating this student or my child to be a better human being. Do you think that when ideas become tangible, that it does lead to pe- people being better human beings? I think so, and here's the reason. Yeah, I think so because we're we're. Uh, I think this is where uh, modern education is deep us in the thinking that if our kids can think more intellectually, more philosophically, more uh, lofty than other students, then in some way we're giving them a better education. Hmm. Yeah. And, uh, of course, we got to think about those things. But, you know, at the end of the day, and this is why I like the idea of metaphor from a very early age as much as possible, and that is that when you make these abstract uh, thoughts, they can lead you to creating almost a fantasy world or almost a world where uh, you've idealized life and you begin to resent the fact that things are not living up to that ideal. And so 
we live in a tangible world where people of physicality, where, where, where people that are human beings, and I think um, the, the, the worst uh, enemy sometimes in classical education is uh, Gnosticism, where we, we begin to think about, you know, it's the old form of saying we're not physical human beings. We're, you know, made to be elitist and, you know, we're, we're going to uh, one day fly to heaven and be, you know, these angelic type creature we're not angels we're uh we're not purely uh if you want to say divine or, or spiritual and i hate that dichotomy in some ways but uh I, I think we're we're human beings and so what it does is it anchors and it grounds our students in the ordinary mundane world that they live in and so um you know when we're thinking about this idea of humanness most of the world that they encounter the first thing they're going to encounter is not the idea behind the thing, but they're going to encounter the thing. You know, they're going to encounter a piece of music. They're going to encounter uh, a movie. They're going to encounter things that appeal to the senses. And so, why would we start with the intellect or the or, or the idea? Why would we not start with how they're going to approach life in the first place? And that is, they're going to it's going to enter through their senses. Now, there may be abstract thoughts and intellectual things that they do with their, their senses after that. Uh, but ultimately, this is how life happens. This is what it means to be a human being in the ordinary world. Hmm. It strikes me, you know, uh, I studied, and a lot of people who have listened to this probably know that I studied uh, creative writing, fiction writing in college. And one of the big things mm-hmm. that, are, that that is emphasized so much is that great fiction writing begins with the senses, right? So... If you're going to tell a story, it's not just about the list of things that happened. Or if you want an idea to come across, you can't just say what the idea is. You have to – it has to be – it has to be manifested uh, through through the senses. And it seems like that's speaking, I guess, to that commonality, to to the idea that that's what makes us human, that we can understand things that are abstract, that are otherwise unattainable or ununderstandable or untouchable – through our senses and that the senses. So it, it really, it's really amazing to think about just how powerful the senses are, you know, in terms of keeping us alive and making us enjoy life. Sure. Yeah. But also in helping us understand otherwise, you know, inexplicable things. Absolutely. And, and that's why I think at the end of the day, you know, when people uh, use words and we're, we're notorious for doing this, uh, use a word like uh, omnipotence. Ultimately, omnipotence doesn't add to my experience. But if I say God is my fortress, mm-hmm. you know, I give a metaphor, mm-hmm. immediately my emotions are evoked. Like who I am as a human being, uh, you know, you know, personally, my blood pressure goes up a little bit. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little more excited because I'm, I'm seeing something. I'm, I'm, I'm visualizing something, and, and I think that's what good writers do. And Aristotle talked about the idea of bringing before the eyes – and uh, I think people neglect the sensory approach. And, you know, a good friend of mine, uh, James Taylor, talked about the idea of poetic knowledge. Yep. And I think this is why uh, uh, some of the brightest people in the world, I mean, look at, uh, you know, Solomon and David. I mean, these guys are right in poetry and proverbs because ultimately, you know, what good, po- what good, what human beings do, what they love, things that not only give them knowledge but move their souls and delight their souls are the ability that people have when they communicate to them to take something mundane 
give a little abstraction to it and, 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 and exalt it in a divine way and move us a little higher than just our experiences. But if we stop there, uh, it's not as exciting as someone that can bring it back down and communicate abstract ideas uh, in a in a uh, concrete and tangible way. Those are the people that at the end of the day move our souls. Hmm. That's how our souls are moved. If I can bring it, have an experience of the divine and bring it back down in a tangible way, that's ultimately what's going to nourish my soul. You know, we're talking about truth, goodness, and beauty. Those are only as effective as, you know, Christ coming down, entering our world, beauty, truth, and goodness, entering our world, and those experiences that we have through that move us. They transform us versus just informing us. And it strikes me that that in in using metaphors or whatever that that we are training our students to see, we're enabling them and making it possible that they can see things. Um, and it, and you talked about how you know we want to train our students to contemplate over critique, and when we use those metaphors, we that's what they're able to do. They're able to uh, to actually contemplate an idea in a way that they wouldn't be able to otherwise. Right, right, and that's where I feel a lot of people that. Um, I think we've skipped the first step of, of learning and, and experiencing the wonder of life mm. because we're not giving our, our, our children and our students um, time to look and observe and see. And we try to jump to the stuff that they could that they should be able to do intellectually. Uh, and this requires time. It requires a little bit of silence in the classroom. But the other side to it is uh, this idea of contemplating over critiquing uh, that I feel like um, that that has been a huge part of my thoughts on education is the that, that being willing to suspend my agenda. I think John Hodges talked about this uh, at the conference. Uh, yeah, he's a good friend of mine, and I think he stole it from C.S. Lewis because I did. Uh, <laughs> but the idea of some <laughs> because but the idea of submission to yeah. something, being willing to to make yourself almost vulnerable to something, and just stop for a minute. And not figure out what you can do with it, or how you're going to control it, or how you're going to manipulate it, or how you're going to get information from it that you need to memorize to get from the test, mm. but the ability to stop and see, mm. uh, the the uh, ability to contemplate. I think uh, you know in the past, and uh, Joseph Keeper uh, uh, or Piper, however you want to pronounce it, uh, with um, the leader of the basis of culture talks about the yeah. idea that, um, and, and I, I love the way he says this, that in the past there were two categories of understanding and learning, and that was one was the what they call the ratio uh, of the ratio, uh, where you're, you're going in, you're critiquing, you're analyzing. That has a place, but it's very one-sided education if you don't understand there's an intellectus that they talked about in the medievals. There's categories of contemplation. And thinking and savoring. I mean, you see this in Scripture: taste and see that the Lord is good. Be still and know that I'm God. Mm -hmm. I mean, the be still, be still, and the knowing are right there together. And so, there's a knowledge that we obtain by slowing down, by teaching our kids to see, uh, and we can impart the idea of there's a skill to approaching knowledge, just not by saying, "What can I know about this?" Uh, in a in a a, a very analytical way, but ultimately, you know, what can I know as far as a tacit, inherent, like, beauty to knowing that? You know, for instance, there's a time and place to critique a poem, but if a kid loses the uh, ability 
to approach that poem that it's a poem and not a textbook. Hmm. They lose the ability to, uh, you know, think about uh, a poem in terms of something I can do with it versus saying this is something to enjoy. Then we lost them. Like why why would we have new poetry in the first place? The same the same thing. I'm I'm, I'm realizing that we've done an injustice to our students because we're not teaching them how to approach books. Um, we're, we're, we're jumping into the book as far as the knowledge they can gain, and then we look back and wonder why they don't love literature. Yeah, I was going to say, we kind of don't teach people <laughs> the poetry anymore. We, we just sort of, you know, there's a reason why we, why we don't, as a culture, care about poetry as, or even, you know, yeah. to a certain degree, fiction as much as we used to. Um, yeah, because we don't see it as something useful. And the reason we right. don't see it as something useful, uh, and, and uh, as a classical educator myself and other classical educators, we do the same thing that everybody else is doing. We want to jump in and say, what do you need to know about this? Like, yeah. uh, and, you know, if I see another kid that tells me what uh, expresses what they know by telling me how many books they've read and how many books they've burned through, and just because they know the content, it doesn't make them a better thinker. It doesn't make them a better poet. It doesn't make them a better lover. And ultimately, it doesn't make them a better human being just because they read that book and they know what it's about. It seems to me that kids have this, you know, from the beginning, they have the ability, or at least some ability to see and contemplate that we, as adults, even struggle to maintain. So like on Sunday, I was at church, and we were outside on the playground afterwards, and there's this whole, you know, herd of children under the age of five, and they found a, there was some, there was a little pool of water, it was actually just mud, but they found a toad, or a frog, or, you know, something, and they were just overwhelmingly excited, you know, all these kids were, probably 20 of them were running around, coming to all their parents, saying, come see this, come see this, and it's hot out, and they're all sweaty and muddy after church, and the parents are just like, we just want to sit here and not and you know, not talk, but or talk, but they're so excited, and they have this yeah, yeah. inherent yeah, yeah. natural ability to to see things that we can't otherwise see. And it seems like all you have to do to strip that of them is to send them to school. <laughs> um, well, I'm over. I'm yeah, overstating that, uh, obviously. It, no, no, you're not. I mean, I think that's a good illustration, and uh, I think uh, a lot of poor teacher, a lot of poor teaching is a result. Of, forget, of losing that wonderment and forgetting what it was like to experience and process those things uh, in the first place. And so, and, and because of that, we try to short, short circuit a lot of experiences, a lot of love, a lot of wonderment, a lot of good things uh, in the name of we've got to get through the material. And yeah. so, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm honestly, you know, I've, I've been. I've had stewardship over and been in charge of deciding every year what teachers need to stay in a school and not. And I'm thinking the root of all of those have gone back to teachers that have lost the the ability to uh, be in awe and wonder of not even only their subject, but also the students uh, in the classroom. Yeah. The other side of that is what you're talking about is, uh, I mean, those those things that like we lose so many opportunities to draw off of those and make those teaching opportunities. I mean, those are things that we remember for a lifetime uh, over the uh, the information and the content. When te- good teachers do that, and so you know, it's going back to just teaching kids how to see. But maybe this is more as teachers, we got to go back to the skill of of, of being amazed and and, and 
you know, being able to see again. And, you know, I, I love the, there's a quote by Albert Einstein that says he was amazed at how, you know, you, you got to think about Albert Einstein. He was uh, diagnosed with a learning disability, if you want to put it in base terms. But uh, there's a rawer form, <laughs> you know, that they thought he would never be able to learn. Uh, but looking back on his education, he said it's a, it's a wonder how schools strangle out the holy curiosity of students uh, in regard to our learning. And uh, it's kind of like one of those things where I hear schools all the time talk about integration. Uh, but when my daughter was four or five years old, her world was integrated. I mean, she saw the divine in the, the small things. Mm. We're the ones that disintegrate <laughs> the world yeah. through yeah. subjects. And then we spend the next you know, from seventh grade, we we disintegrated their world from K to five, and then we try to spend the next uh, you know seven or eight years trying to re you know reintegrate their world. Well, we're the ones yeah. that kind of you know destroyed that in the first place. The same thing with wonder, and I, I, and I just think it's huge being able to see, being able to wonder, uh, and I, I think it is tied to the common places because uh, our life is not made to live in big experiences. I mean. You know, there's not a wow factor to everything, you know, being a, tied to a big event. The wow factor in life is are you able to see things around you, whether it's your your spouse or you're a student and you're and you're anticipating the fact that because they're main names of God, I'm gonna see something here that's pretty cool about what God's trying to show me or in my home or in um something we're cooking together or outside or in the classroom. And, you know, I think, uh, I think it's a lost art in our society that we've got to recover. And I think classical education, uh, depends on it. Well, when I think back at my, the greatest teachers that I have, or even when I think back at the, the, the best conference talks at a Cersei conference, I think that one of the things that is definitely uh, common about all those people is the way they came to whatever they were talking about with a real sense of, as you described yourself, a sense of curiosity or a sense of wonder or a yeah. sense of amazement. Yeah. I had a professor in college who would, every day he would come into class and you could tell he was just in rapture that he was just so, um, he was so curious and so uh, in awe of the books that he was teaching. And that really, you know, even students who came in, you know, to the state college, you know, in Charlotte, North Carolina, that, that you know, were taking these English classes because they had to. That, you know, even when they came in so cynical, by the end of the year, they had a sense of like they were at least interested. You know, they were his sense of awe rubbed off. You know, at least to a certain extent. Yeah. When you, yeah. When you and that's go ahead. Go, well, I was just gonna say when you listen to a talk like by Jay, John Hodges about music, he comes to. Yeah. You know, he he explores this piece of music with a sense of wonder that rubs off. It's that energy. It's that you know, and I don't mean you know, I don't, I mean energy in a very positive sense, not like in a you know a weird. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely, man. I mean, when you like John Hodges, he and I have lived a lot of life together. Yeah. We served at the same school. Yeah. But yeah. I'm never like I am always impressed by his ability. You would think it's the first time he's heard a piece of music. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I love that. They're just like this childlike, and I think this is part of what Christ is talking about when he's saying, uh, you know, you've got to enter the kingdom like a little child. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a sense yeah. of where I'm willing to be vulnerable. I'm willing to say, what is it that you're going to show me today? I think there's a beauty to that. Uh, but, you know, the thing about it is what I hope is that people don't listen to this podcast or, uh, you know, in some way hear what I said at a surgeon conference and beat themselves up over this. What I hope it does is spur them on, whether they're a homeschool mom or they're in a school, to go back and say, not am I teaching from a, a, a posture of wonderment? I mean, that's the end goal, but I mean, use this as an opportunity to say, what is it about my life or about what I teach that I'm not energized by? If I don't have this wonderment, why is it? And what are some things I can do for myself? Not just, you know, but, but but what are some things that I can do for myself that will energize me and, and rekindle this love for why, you know, I want to do this in the first place? Hmm. Or if it's a subject I don't like, why don't I like it? And what can I go back to that I know that will, that will help me kind of uh, have a spark of wanting to love that? You know, who can I read? Who can I talk to? Uh, you know, let me talk to other people that can be a mentor that love this uh, subject. I mean, I love, like, math has always been hard to me, and I love talking to people that are passionate about math. I mean, some of my best friends in the educational movement are people that love mathematics, and they communicate the way they communicate, the metaphors they use, and it energizes me. It makes me want to be a math teacher when I've never been one. Yeah. And there's the metaphors again. Like even someone who struggles with math can can discover the wonder of it because of the kind of metaphors that are used to teach it to them. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, you know, mathematicians sometimes can be like, uh, you know, I've, I've had friends that have said before, like, education departments exist to keep education departments in existence. And I think sometimes, <laughs> you know, our, our mathematicians need to get better at not just speaking and perpetuating their own terminology but man there's so like math unlike the verbal arts has so many opportunities to draw analogies and metaphors to the external world because they're already there i mean there's forms i mean there's so many things i mean we teach you know triangle and think about a piece of pizza i mean kids are like stoked about that but for some reason i I feel like that that we've lost that And, and some of the best math teachers i know are people that have you know, one of the best math teachers I know, I've ever known is uh, he was a nuclear submariner. He was on a submarine, and he was always like, <laughs> you know, take that or or an engineer or someone that has real life experiences. They've been some of the math, best math teachers I know, and it doesn't mean that we have to be a, an engineer or, you know, a, a military submariner or naval guy to to understand math well. But what made their classes magic? Is that they had a, a like intuitive notion, and I'm, I'm not talking about a formula. I'm not talking about an equation. I mean, this represents something that you guys are going to see and continue to see, whether you know it or not, in the in the world around you. Hmm. Well, we are um, we're running out of time here, so uh, this has been fun. Yeah, Do you have any no fi- any final thoughts you wanna you wanna say to the people that are listening before uh, before we? before we say farewell? I don't think so. I mean, other than the fact that, you know, I, I just want to be encouraged by uh, what I'm talking about here. I mean, a lot of this is just things that just, that I think we neglect as human beings and not to make it complicated. This is not a, another technique or a formula. 
I hope this simplifies uh, what they've actually, at the end of the day, uh, already doing. And it doesn't need to add something to your plate. It's more of an approach and a thought and a perspective on what you're already doing. So this is not a take your curriculum and trash it. This is more of what can I bring to the table that will build commonality with the, my child or my student that will that we can experience and, and walk hand in hand and re- recover the idea of that man we're just we're seeing things we're we're going to be amazed by them and just walk in the classroom every day anticipating that whether it be through my child or what we're studying uh, we're going to see something exciting today. So, but you know, I, my worst fear is that someone would see that this as something that would be need to be added to their plate. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I'm going to be thinking about, as you said, um, I'm not teaching content, I'm teaching students. And I think that's a, that's a notion that I think I'm going to write down and, and make sure that I have uh, handy as I'm, as I'm thinking about my own teaching and my own kids. So thank you for, for noting that. That's the, that's one of the things that stood out to me. So that's my final thought. <laughs> yep. That's hard, man. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks to everyone who's been listening. And, uh, uh, we look forward to to hearing from more from James in the in the coming months. He, you know, it's great to have him have you back in the orbit, James. Well, uh, it's, it's uh, humbling and a privilege that I can be using this way. And if I can help anyway, just let me know. Thanks, Dan. We appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And this has been another episode of Quiddity on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I'll talk to you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.